Part Four of Anything You Can Do by Randall Garrett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Four. The two objects floating in space both looked like pitted pieces of rock. The larger one, roughly pear-shaped and about a quarter of a mile in its greatest dimension, was actually that—a hunk of rock. The smaller, much smaller of the two was a camouflaged spaceboat. The smaller was on a near-collision course with reference to the larger, although their relative velocities were not great. At precisely the right time, the smaller drifted by the larger only a few hundred yards away. The weakness of the gravitational fields generated between the two caused only a slight change of orbit on the part of both bodies. Then they began to separate. But during the few seconds of their closest approach, a third body had detached itself from the camouflaged spaceboat and shot rapidly across the intervening distance to land on the surface of the floating mountain. The third body was a man in a spacesuit. As soon as he landed, he sat down, stock still, and checked the instrument case he held in his hands. No response. Thus far, then, he had succeeded. He had had to pick his time precisely. The people who were already on this small planetoid could not use their detection equipment while the planetoid itself was within detection range of Beacon 971, only 280 miles away. Not if they wanted to keep from being found. Radar pulses emanating from a presumably lifeless planetoid would be a dead giveaway. Other than that, they were mathematically safe, if they depended on the laws of chance. No ship moving through the asteroid belt would dare to move at any decent velocity without using radar, so the people on this particular lump of planetary flotsam would be able to spot a ship's approach easily, long before their own weak detection system could register on the pickups of the approaching ship. The power and range needed by a given detector depends on the relative velocity. The greater that velocity, the more power, the greater range needed. At one mile per second, a ship needs a range of only 30 miles to spot an obstacle 30 seconds away. At 10 miles per second, it needs a range of 300 miles. The man who called himself Stanley Martin had carefully plotted the orbit of this particular planetoid and then let his spaceboat coast in without using any detection equipment except the visual. It had been necessary, but very risky. But very risky. Had the people here seen his boat? Boat? If so, had they recognized it in spite of the heavy camouflage? And even if they only suspected, what would be their reaction? He waited. It takes nerve and patience to wait for thirteen solid hours without moving more than an occasional flexure of muscles. But he managed that long before the instrument case waggled a meter needle at him. The one relieving factor was the low gravity. On an asteroid, 
the problem of sleeping on a bed of nails is caused by the likelihood of accidentally throwing oneself off the bed. The probability of puncture or discomfort from the points is almost negligible. When the needle of the instrument panel flickered, he got to his feet and began moving. He was almost certain that he had not been detected. Walking was out of the question. This was a silicate alumina rock, not a nickel-iron one. The group that occupied it had deliberately chosen it that way, so that there would be no chance of its being picked out for slicing by one of the mining teams in the asteroid belt. Granted, the chance of any given metallic planetoids being selected was very small. They had not even wanted to take that chance. Therefore, without any magnetic field to hold him down, and only a very tiny gravitic field, the man had to use different tactics. It was more like mountain climbing than anything else, except that there was no danger of falling. He crawled over the surface in the same way that an alpine climber might climb up the side of a steep slope seeking handholds and toeholds and using them to propel himself onward. The only difference was that he covered distance a great deal more rapidly than a mountain climber could. When he reached the spot he wanted, he carefully concealed himself beneath a craggy overhang. It took a little searching to find exactly the right spot, but when he did, he settled himself into place in a small pit and began more elaborate preparations. Self-hypnosis required nearly ten minutes. The first five or six minutes were taken up in relaxing from his exertion. Gravity notwithstanding, he had had to push his hundred and eighty pounds of mass over a considerable distance. When he was completely relaxed and completely hypnotized, he reached up and cut down the valve that fed oxygen into his suit. Then, of his own will, he went cataleptic. A single note, sounded by the instruments in the case by his side, woke him instantly. He came fully awake, as he had commanded himself to do. Immediately he turned up his oxygen intake, at the same time glancing at the clock dial in his helmet. He smiled. Nineteen days and seven hours. He had calculated it almost precisely. He wasn't more than an hour off, which was pretty good, all things considered. He consulted his instruments again. The supply ship was ten minutes away. The smile stayed on his face as he prepared for further action. The first two minutes were conscientiously spent in inhaling oxygen, even under the best cataleptic conditions, the body tended to slow down too much. He had to get himself prepared for violent movement. Eight minutes left. He climbed out of the little grotto where he had concealed himself and moved toward the spot where he knew the airlock to the caverns underneath the planetoid's surface was hidden. Then again he concealed himself and waited while he continued to breathe deeply of the highly oxygenated air in his suit. Five minutes before the ship landed, he swallowed eight ounces of the nutrient solution from the tank in the back of his helmet. The solution of amino acids, vitamins, and honey sugar 
also contained a small amount of stimulant of the dexedrine type and 1% ethanol. Then he unholstered his gun. It wasn't a big ship. He had known it wouldn't be. It was only a little larger than the one he had used to come here. It dropped down to the surface of the small planetoid only ten meters from the hidden trapdoor that led to the airlock beneath the surface. He could suddenly hear voices in the earphones of his helmet. Lasser? It's me, Fritz. I got your supplies and good news. The airlock trapdoor opened and a space-suited figure came out. How about the deal? That's the good news, said the second suited figure, as it came from the airlock of the grounded spaceboat. Another five million. The man who was hidden behind the nearby crag of rock listened and watched for a minute or so more, while the two men began unloading cases of foodstuffs from the spaceboat. Then, satisfied that it was perfectly safe, he aimed his gun and shot twice in rapid succession. The range was almost point-blank, and there was, of course, no need to take either gravity or air resistance into account. The pellets of the shotgun-like charge that blasted out from the gun were small, needle-shaped, and heavy. They were oriented point-forward by the magnetic field along the barrel of the weapon. Of the hundreds in each charge fired, only a few penetrated the spacesuits of the targets, but those few were enough. The powerful drug in the needle-pointed head of each went into the bloodstream of the target. Each man felt an itching sensation. He had less than two seconds to think about it, before unconsciousness overtook him and he slumped nervelessly. The man with the gun ran across the intervening space quickly, his body only a few degrees from the horizontal, and his toes paddling rapidly to propel him over the rough rock. He braked himself to a halt and slapped air patches over the area where his charges had struck the men's suits, sealing the tiny air leaks, and at the same time, driving more of the tiny needles into their skins. They would be out for a long time. Neither of them had yet fallen to the ground. That would take several minutes under this low gravity. He left them to drop and headed toward the open airlock. This was what he had been waiting for those nineteen days in cataleptic hypnosis. He couldn't have cut his way in from the outside. He had had to wait until it opened, and that time would come only when the supply ship came. Once in the airlock, he touched the control stud that would close the outer door, pump air into the waiting room, and open the inner door. Here was his greatest point of danger, greater even than the danger of coming to the planetoid, or the danger of waiting nineteen days for the coming of the supply ship. If the ones who remained within suspected anything, anything at all, then his chances of coming out of this alive were practically nil. But there was no reason why they should suspect. They should think that the man coming in was one of their own. The radio contact between the men outside had been limited to a few millimicrowatts of power, Necessarily, since radio waves of very small wattage can be decoded at tremendous distances in open space. 
the men inside the planetoid certainly should not have been able to pick up any more than the beginning of the conversation before it had been cut off by solid rock it was a high-speed airlock unlike the soundless discharge of his special gun in the outer airlessness the blast of air that came into the waiting chamber was like a hurricane in noise and force as the room filled in a few seconds he held on to the handholds tightly while the brief but violent winds buffeted him he turned as the inner door opened his eyes took in the picture in a fraction of a second in an even smaller fraction his mind assimilated the picture the woman was dark-haired dark-eyed and muscular her mouth was wide and thick-lipped beneath a large nose the man was leaner and lighter bony-faced and beady-eyed the woman said fritz what and then he shot them both with gun number two no needle charges this time such shots would have blown them both in two unprotected as they were by spacesuits the small handgun merely jangled their nerves with a high-powered blast of accurately beamed supersonics while they were still twitching he went over and jabbed them with a drug needle then he went on into the hideout he had to knock out one more man whom he found asleep in a room off the short corridor it took a gas bomb to get the two women who were guarding the kid he made sure that the ben Kayim boy was all right then he went to the little communications room and called for help colonel walther mannheim tapped the map that glowed on the wall before him he's right there where those tunnels come together bart stanton looked at the map of manhattan island and at the gleaming colored traceries that threaded their various ways across it just what was the purpose of those tunnels he asked curiously they were for rail transportation said the colonel the island was hit by a sun bomb during the holocaust and almost completely leveled and slagged down when the city was rebuilt there was naturally no need for such things so they were simply sealed off and forgotten right under government city stanton said incredible it used to be one of the largest seaports in the world colonel mannheim said and it probably still would be if the inertia drive hadn't made air travel cheaper and easier than seagoing how did he find out about the tunnels stanton asked the colonel pointed at the north end of the island after the holocaust the first returnees to the island were wild animals which crossed from the mainland from the north the harlem river isn't very wide at this point also because of the rocky hills at this end of the island there were places which were spared the direct effects of the bomb and grasses and trees began growing there that's why it was decided to leave that section as a game preserve when the government built the capital on the southern part of the island his finger moved down the map the upper three miles of the island down to here where it begins to widen are all game preserve there's a high wall here which separates it from the city and the ruins of the bridges which connected with the mainland have been removed so the animals can't get back across any more two years after he arrived the knipe was almost caught 
He had managed somehow, we're not sure yet exactly how, to get here from Asia. According to the psychologists who have been studying him, he apparently does not believe that human beings are any more than trained animals. He was looking then, as he is apparently still looking, for the real rulers of Earth. He expected to find them, of course, in Government City. Needless to say, said the colonel with a touch of irony, he failed. But he was seen, asked Stanton. He was seen and pursued, but he got away easily, heading north. The island was searched, and the police were ready to start an inch by inch going over of the island two days later, but the knife hit and robbed a chemical supply house in northern Pennsylvania, killing two men, so the search was called off. It wasn't until two years later, after exhaustive analysis of the pattern of his rays had given us something to work with, that we decided that he must have found an opening into one of the tunnels up here in the game preserve. He gestured again at the map. It wouldn't take him long to see that no human being had been down there in a long time. It was a perfect place for his base. How does he move in and out? Stanton asked. This way. The colonel traced a finger down one of the red lines on the map southward until he came to a spot only a little over two miles from the southernmost tip of the island. The line turned abruptly toward the western edge of the island, where it stopped. This tunnel goes underneath the Hudson River at this point, and emerges on the other side. It's only one of several that do so. They're all flooded now. The sun bomb caved them in when the primary shock wave hit the surface of the river. In spite of his high rate of metabolism, the knipe can store a tremendous amount of oxygen in his body and can stay underwater for as long as half an hour without breathing apparatus if he conserves his energy. When he's wearing his scuba apparatus, he's practically a self-contained submarine. The pressure doesn't seem to bother him much. He's a tough cookie. Stanton nodded silently and slowly. Could he beat the knipe in hand-to-hand -hand combat? There would be no way of knowing until the final moment of success or failure. At that time, the colonel went on, we hadn't formulated any definite policy on the knipe. We didn't know what he was up to. We weren't even sure he was actually down in those tunnels. We had to find out. He walked over to the nearby table and opened a box some twelve inches long and five by five inches in cross-section. "'See this?' he said as he took something out. "'It looked like a large dead rat.' "'Our spy,' said Colonel Mannheim. The rat moved along the rusted steel rail that ran the length of the huge tunnel. To a human being, the tunnel would have seemed to be in utter darkness." But the little eyes of the rat saw its surroundings as fairly luminescent, glowing from the infrared radiations given out by the internal warmth of cement and steel. The main source came from above, where the heat of the sun and of the energy sources in the buildings on the surface seeped through the roof of the tunnel. On and on it moved its little pinkish feet pattering almost silently on the oxidized metal surface of the rail. 
Its sensitive ears picked up the movements and the squeals of other rats, but it paid them no heed. Several times it met other rats on the rail, but most of them sensed the alienness of this rat and scuttled out of its way. Once it met a rat who did not give way. Hungry, perhaps, or merely yielding to the paranoid fury that was a normal component of the rattish mind, it squealed its defiance to the rat that was not a rat. It advanced, baring its teeth. The rat that was not a rat became suddenly motionless. Its sharp rodent's nose pointed directly at the enemy. There came a noise, a tiny popping hiss, like that of a very small drop of water striking hot metal. From the left nostril of the knot-rat, a tiny glass-like needle snapped out at bullet speed. It struck the advancing rat in the center of the pink tongue that was visible in the open mouth. Then the knot-rat scuttled backwards faster than any rat could have moved. For a second, the real rat hesitated, and it may be that the realization penetrated into its dim brain that rats did not fight this way. Then, as the tiny needle dissolved in its bloodstream, it closed its eyes and collapsed, rolling limply off the rail. The rat might come to before it was found and devoured by its fellows, or it might not. The nun-rat moved on, not caring either way. The human intelligence that looked out from the eyes of the knot-rat was only concerned with getting to the nipe. "'That's how we found the nipe,' Colonel Mannheim said, "'and that's how we keep tabs on him now.' We have over 700 of these remote-control robots hidden in strategic spots in those tunnels now, but it took time to get everything set up this way. Now we can follow the Nipe wherever he goes, so long as he stays in the tunnels. If he went out through an open-air exit, we could have him followed by bird robots, but... He shrugged wryly. I'm afraid the underwater problem still has us stumped. We can't get the carrier wave for the remote control impulses to go far underwater. How do you get your carrier wave underground to those tunnels? Stanton asked. The colonel grinned widely. One of the boys dreamed up a real cute gimmick. The rails themselves act as antenna for the broadcaster, and the rat's tail is the pickup antenna. As long as the rat is crawling right on the rail, only a microscopic amount of power is needed for control, not enough for the knife to pick up with his instruments. Each rat carries its own battery for motive power, and there are old copper power cables down there that we can send direct current through to recharge the batteries. And when we need them, the copper cables can be used as antennas. It took us quite a while to work the system out. Stanton rubbed his head thoughtfully. Damn these gaps in his memory, he thought. It was sometimes embarrassing to ask questions that any schoolboy should know. Aren't there ways of detecting objects underwater? he asked after a moment. Yes, said the colonel, but they all require beamed energy of some kind to be reflected from the object, and we don't dare use anything like that. He sat down on one corner of the table, his bright blue eyes looking up at Stanton. That's been our problem all along, he said seriously. 
keeping the knife from knowing that he's being watched. In the tunnels, we've used only equipment that was already there, adding only what we absolutely had to. Small things, a few strands of wire, a tiny relay, things that can be hidden in out-of-the-way places. After all, he has his own alarm system in the maze of tunnels, and we've deliberately kept away from his detecting devices. He knows about the rats and ignores them. They're part of the environment. But we don't dare use anything that would tip him off to our knowledge of his whereabouts. One slip like that, and hundreds of human beings will have died in vain. And if he stays there too long, Stanton said levelly, millions more may die. The colonel's face was grim as he looked directly into Stanton's eyes. That's why you have to know your job down to the most minute detail when the time comes to act. The whole success of the plan will depend on you and you alone. Stanton's eyes didn't avoid the colonel's. That's not true, he thought. I'll only be one man on a team, and you know it, Colonel Mannheim. But you'd like to shovel all the responsibility off onto someone else, someone stronger. You've finally met someone that you consider superior in that way, and you want to unload. I wish I felt as confident as you do, but I don't. Aloud, he said, Sure, nothing to it. All I have to do is take into account everything that's known about the knife and make allowances for everything that's not known. Then he smiled. Not, he added, that I can think of any other way to go about it. End of Part 4